Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Dean Rufiel. Yes, Eric, this is Dean Rufiel of ESPN, and I'm actually <laughs> going to be your guest podcast co-host this week. You mean Dan Rayfield? Uh, that's right, Dean Rufiel of ESPN. Um, <laughs> well, and I'm I, with Eric Raskin. I, I, I know Dan Rayfield. Uh, I, I've known him for more than 20 years. He's been on this podcast several times. Uh, if you're trying to say you are Dan Rayfield, uh, not Dean, I don't know Dean Rufiel, but if you're trying to say you're Dan Rayfield, this is definitely not Dan Rayfield. Um, oh, this is Dean Rufiel um, <laughs> for the Showtime Boxing Podcast. And scene. Uh, we should probably explain what this is all about. Yes, if any of you listeners don't know what the hell that was all about, uh, you must not have seen the clip of Jake Paul trying to call John Fury recently, pretending to be Dan Raphael, but not knowing how to pronounce the name of the person he was trying to be. He went with the typical guess, Dan Raphael. Uh, also not knowing that person hasn't worked for ESPN in a couple <laughs> exactly. of years. And uh, the guy on the other end uh, called Jake Paul out immediately. Uh had Jake Paul done, I don't know, 12 seconds of research before making his prank call, he yep. may have had a chance at success. Very lazy. Uh, kind of surprising for a guy who's worked as hard as he has and taken boxing so seriously. Surprising that he would mail in something this simple and be this bad at it. I can't believe I'm saying this, Kieran, but uh, Jake Paul, stick to boxing. <laughs> Is this how he got rich from YouTube? By just like completely half-assing prank phone calls? <laughs> I, I wouldn't know, but uh, sadly, I would say it wouldn't surprise me. Ah, uh, yes, it's true. America. Who knows? <laughs> yes. That about sums it up. <laughs> Just take go. six letters to explain things sometimes. <laughs> Precisely. Um, it is yet another busy week in the real boxing world. And uh, therefore, it's another packed podcast. Um, coming up, we will preview the special Showtime Boxing International telecast from Australia. The uh, the intriguing and potentially very exciting Tim Zoo Tony Harrison, 154-pound showdown. We'll also look ahead to three newly announced Showtime triple headers. We will lament the unfortunate news that Katie Taylor versus Amanda Serrano 2 is off for now. Eric will count down his all-time top five most impressive first impressions boxes made on him, and that just trips off the tongue. Um, <laughs> and he'll test my knowledge with another edition of the fight game. But first, let's break down uh, Saturday night's all-action Showtime Championship boxing card from Ontario, California. And it was an all-action card. Yeah. Uh, it served as the coming-out party for two young middleweights and provided a platform in the main event for former junior featherweight titleist Brandon Figueroa to stake his claim now as one of the best featherweights in the world. Against Mark Magsayo, Figueroa did what Figueroa does. He started slowly, but got stronger and stronger as the fight went on and wore his opponent down with pressure and a vicious body attack. In this case, it resulted in a unanimous decision win. Magsayo was having trouble staying on his feet the last few rounds, though there were no official knockdowns, but he did lose points in both the 8th and 11th rounds for holding, which contributed to the wide gap on the scorecards. Two scores of 117-109 and one tally of 118-108. I had it 116-110. I did think Figueroa won the fight going away, although Showtime Steve Farhood had it much closer, 114-112, with the point deductions making the difference. With his second straight decision defeat, the 27-year-old Maxayo slips to 24-2 with 16 KOs, while the 26-year-old Figueroa improves to 24-1-1 with 18 knockouts, 
Kieran, did you agree with the judges' scoring, Steve's scoring, or something in between? And assuming you did at least score in favor of Figueroa, what did you see here that separated him from Magsayo? What was the key or keys to victory? I had it exactly halfway between you and Steve, 115-111. Like Steve, I gave Magsayo three of the first four rounds, but I only gave him one more after that, um, with round eight and nine-nine round uh, after the point deduction. You know, normally you'd you'd see a result like this and you just assume that Brandon Figueroa outworked and outthrew and outlanded Magsayo because that's what he does. He outworks and outthrows and outlands opponents. But this time was a little different. you know, Figueroa averages 92 punches around over his career, but only managed 54 around on average against Maxayo, and they basically landed the same amount. But not all punches are the same, and there's a lot else that goes into a fight. And I said in the preview that what Maxayo needed to do was keep moving, right? Punch, move, punch, move. Right. Don't let Figueroa get close. Don't let him get into a groove. And early on, he was doing that very well, I thought, which is why I had him winning so many of those early three or four rounds. But that does take a lot of effort. It makes some real demands on you and on your legs. And that's a problem when you're up against someone who's as relentless and as seemingly tireless as Figueroa. It took everything he had to keep Figueroa at bay in those first few rounds. And then when Figueroa just kept on coming, it was more and more difficult for Maxayo to stay in the fight. And it felt as if bit by bit, he was transitioning from trying to take the fight to Figueroa to fighting to keep Figueroa off him. And he had that one last stand in the eighth round when he'd already been doctor point beholding but that really was his last stand yeah. and i think figaro's body punching played a significant role in sapping maxayo of his fight and i think also there was just a lack of predictability to figaro's offense that helped tire maxayo out you knew what maxayo was going to try and do you knew he was going to try and, and land these big shots and then move but figaro was throwing all manner of different punches to the body up top in bunches one at a time and I think Maxaya was also tiring from trying to anticipate and block punches that were very hard to anticipate and block. There's a, there's a relentlessness to Figueroa, as we all know, but I think this showed, again, that he's not, it's not a monolithic assault, right? There's, there's subtlety and unpredictability in there. And you combine that with his iron chin and his astonishing levels of fitness and, and, and that make him, you know, those, those together make him an extremely difficult challenge. And it was just too much for Maxayo, who was really just, just worn down. I mean, like you said, there were no official knockdowns, but he went down a bunch from fatigue and probably even looking to grab a second or two to, to recover a little bit from just that, just sheer relentlessness of that assault. Um, so this is Figueroa's second win at Featherweight. Um, let me ask you, where do you think he fits in at 126 pounds now? And, and another question, actually, to spin things forward. Just talked about his grinded out pressurizing style. Does that mean that Figueroa is destined to flame out in the next few years? Is he someone, Brandon Figueroa, you'd expect to have a relatively short prime fighting at this elite level? It's an interesting question because, yeah, styles like his usually don't age well. Um, We'll talk shortly about Jared Hurd. Not that the styles of he and Figueroa are the same, but but they're similar in that once you start to decline, there's no turning it around uh, unless you're willing to totally reinvent yourself as a boxer, which I don't expect to see Brandon Figueroa do. He's winning on conditioning and youth and strength and body punching and this unique ability to gather steam. And um, 
most of the time, once youth is removed from that equation, mm. a lot of the rest of it goes away. So, yeah, he's 26 in his prime. I looked it up. He's fought 66 of 72 possible rounds in his last six fights. It's a mm. lot of rounds. It's going to catch up at some point. He took a fair number of punches in several of those fights. By reasonable estimates, Figueroa's style, I think, sets him up to at least start declining by, like, age 30, you'd think. Mm. So, you know, if that's the case, we have, like, three to five more good years of him, unless he proves a total outlier. Um, so I guess the bottom line, the takeaway appreciate him while you can because you just don't know when a guy like this is going to start to slow down right now though to me in the featherweight division after just two fights here i'd rank him number two behind only mauricio lara and by the way what a fight that would be oh my uh, God. two aggressive fighters who can fall behind and come back to win lara the much bigger puncher figueroa the pressure fighter it's a, a good deep division but by convincingly beating Maxayo. I think Figueroa is already top two ahead of Magsayo, Ray Vargas, if he drops back down to 126, Lee Wood, etc. Um, I have a, f- a few more quick notes on this fight. First, I thought the ref, Thomas Taylor, did a good job with a messy fight. Yep. Uh, a lot of refs worn and worn but never penalized, and a lot of refs penalized too soon. I thought he gave Magsayo just the right amount of rope before taking points both times. Magsayo had the much faster hands here. But I found that a lot of his shoe shining was ineffective. Uh, his mm. speed never really got him anywhere with Figueroa, who, by the way, really trusts in his chin and just doesn't care much what you're throwing at him. <laughs> uh, credit to Maxayo for making it to the final bell. His legs, as you said, they were all but gone the last three rounds. He just kept going down over and over, but he showed a lot of heart to make it to the end. Credit also to Sean Gibbons for playing the part of a grieved manager convincingly. I don't know if you saw an interview with him afterwards, but he was trying to make the case that McSayo didn't get a fair shake from the officials. I get feeling that the scores were too wide, but it's immaterial. Figueroa clearly won yeah. that fight and, and shouldn't even have needed the two-point deductions to win. Um, and, and last thing, I predicted we wouldn't see quite as much southpaw stance action out of Figueroa this time. Bad prediction. Uh, not my last bad prediction on this card, but uh, clearly at this point, he prefers fighting as a southpaw. He's barely even a switch hitter anymore. He's he's a southpaw like 95% of the time. Yeah. I think I've said before how much I like Thomas Taylor as a, as a referee, and I, I think he might be my favorite ref right now. And uh, yeah, I was super impressed. He was in command all the time. He was very clear. Neither fighter could express any legitimately any kind of surprise at any of Taylor's actions. I, I thought he was a uh, uh, gave a sort of clinic really, and had a referee a, a somewhat sloppy fight. So. Yeah, he he's climbing the ranks of referees. You just wonder with a referee with that style if he's going to flame out soon. How much longer? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, we were treated to, and this is a theme really of this card: an all-action co-feature and an upset result that we tiptoed up to possibly predicting and then tiptoed away from as little known armando resendez of mexico outslugged former champ jarrett hurd and stopped him at the start of the 10th and final round due to a nasty cut on hurd's lip uh this career best win for resendez makes him 14 and 1 with 10 ko's while hurd drops to 24 and 3 with 16 ko's we spoke beforehand about not being terribly impressed with what we'd seen of Resendez prior to this, but we did acknowledge that coming up a 21-month layoff and defeats in two of his pre three, uh, two of his previous three fights, there were serious questions about whether Hurd had anything left. So, Eric, was this a case 
that Resendus just being in the right place at the right time against the used-up ex-champ, or was Resendus in fact that much better than we realized, and deserves for us to be talking about his upside more than Hurd's downside? Well, the obvious response is that it's plenty of both, um, you know, that this fight went this way because Resendez has improved since losing to Marcos Hernandez and, and Hurd has almost nothing left. But if I have to take a stance and say it's more one than the other, sorry, Resendez, mm. I'm, I'm going to say right guy, right place, right time. Uh, Jared Hurd was once a very good fighter who fought in an unsustainable style with no defense, yep. uh, despite a Mayweather-ish defensive stance, which which just kind of makes no sense for him and the way he <laughs> fights. Um, that style caught up with him starting about four years ago, and it isn't uncatching up with him. And it's tough to watch. Um, to see him giving Jim Gray the thumbs up with a mouthful of gauze at the end, Yeah, you feel bad. Uh, he's, he's by all accounts a great guy, uh, but... I think it's in his best interest to find a new career now. Um, yes. This wasn't ring rust. Uh, this wasn't just an unlucky cut on the lip. This is a pattern of falling short against opponents he would have beaten in his prime. It's his life. It's his career. I'm not telling him what to do, but I'm just saying I personally would like to see him retire. It takes a lot of punches every time out. And he had lost this fight long before the cut on his yep. lip opening up. I had him trailing 88-83 and losing five straight rounds heading into the yep. 10th. All that said, Resendez fought a bit better than I expected him to. Uh, he was fearless. He was in unbelievable shape. And he does deserve a ton of credit for this victory. He, he walked through some serious fire, including lots of flush Jared Hurd uppercuts. He kept coming. Like Figueroa, he seemed to get stronger as the rounds went by. And his volume of punches late. I think were really effective in stifling any hope Hurd might have had of getting good business done himself and getting back into the fight. And um, and by the way, if if you could stomach watching Hurd take punches, this was a tremendously entertaining fight. Yet another almost fight of the year, honorable mention kind of fight early in the year here. Great matchmaking up and down this card. Uh, and as it turned out, just the right opponent for Hurd to tell us as media and fans and, and the powers that be in the sport exactly where he stands. Yeah, I, I echo all of that. I'm I'm hesitant to call her shot, but he's bought a ticket to Shotsville. He's yeah. on the train and yeah. the train is easing out of the station. And I agree with you. He he needs to think seriously about his future now because he's not losing solely to top fight boxers now. Exactly. Um, um, and yeah. But exactly as you said, his style has caught up to him here. And I just don't see where he goes from here. I mean, he could drop down a level or two and, and pick up some wins. But at some point, he'll get caught up to the there too. And is yeah. that really what he wants to do? Is there enough money to do that um, for the kind of punishment he's going to take? I worry about the long-term consequences for his health of the kind of style that he's had and the way that he's taking a lot of flush shots now. Um, but the same as you... Also, look, let's let's absolutely give Resendez credit here for making the win happen. He had the right plan. He knew what to do, and he but he came at Hurd early. He withstood that third, fourth, fifth round kind of comeback from Hurd, and then stepped it back up and turned it back around. And you almost felt the fight come out of Jarrett Hurd in that sixth and seventh rounds when Resendez turned it back around again. And and you got to give the young man credit for having the the fortitude to do that. You know, when he had the veterans seemingly trying to turn it around on him, he turned it right back on him. And, and like you said, just kept throwing. So, um, yeah, credit to him. I don't 
think we know enough about where Resendez really is, um, but he got the win, and that's what matters to him right now. Yep. All right. Uh, the opener on this card was a true eye opener, as we both did a poor job scouting young Elijah Garcia. Uh, the 19-year-old Southpaw middleweight from Phoenix took a huge step up against Emil Carvidal Jr. And it was a close, bruising fight for nearly four rounds until suddenly Garcia froze Vidal with a right hook, unloaded a series of flush shots along the ropes, and ref Jack Reese stepped in and stopped it at 217 of the fourth without a count just after Vidal had hit the canvas. You know how I feel about not counting, Kieran. Uh, although I, <laughs> I think what happened here is Reese had already made up his mind to stop it before the knockdown and, and didn't take the opportunity to reverse course. In any case, Garcia is now 14-0 and with 12 KOs. Vidal loses his O. He's 16-1 and with 12 knockouts. And you nailed it, Kieran. You said KO4, and it was a KO4. Oh, wait. Uh, you said Vidal KO4 in a wipeout. Uh, I also picked Vidal, so... How did we get this one so wrong? And, uh, you know, starting fresh, a, a second try on assessing Garcia. Now what do you make of his potential? Yeah, not, certainly not my finest hour, I must <laughs> say. Um, I guess I'm reaching here, but I guess one thing to say in our favor is Garcia's 19 years old, and when you are 19 years old, you can improve pretty rapidly, right? True, From true, fight to point. fight. Yeah. I mean, that's legit, right? Um. And early on, I will say, through two rounds, I was thinking, hey, you know what? This kid might actually be better than I thought. But it looks like he's still going to get smoked when Vidal gets going. Yep. Uh, I just really, I thought Vidal had a pretty good second round, actually. You know, mm -hmm. he bloodied Garcia's nose. Garcia was doing a lot of squaring up, which was one of the things I was a little bit worried about with the, the very little video that I'd seen of him. But then, you know, a bit like Resendez, who, like, took Hurd's best and then turned it back, uh, you know, on him. Garcia did the same again. Had a very strong third round, I thought. Um. My initial reaction was that I didn't like the stoppage at all. Um, but Vidal didn't protest, really, not right. a lot, anyway. And maybe Reese, who is a good referee, you know, saw something in the way that Vidal reacted after he took those punches. That that comment of yours might be right, actually, that even before he slumped down, that, that Reese saw enough to say, oh, his you know, eyes are rolling back in his head or something. So I don't know. Um, look, Vidal did not fight his fight. Uh, he is effective being out at mid-range and really torquing into his punches. Um, he was barely doing that. He was backing to the ropes, which is not his thing. But I guess the question is, was he doing that because of an error on his part? He felt that the counter-punching was a way to be successful against this kid. Or was Garcia just simply making him do it? Um, you know, I, it was interesting. I, I felt that Vidal just looked like he didn't quite know what to do with Garcia, to be honest. And, and yeah, Garcia would square up sometimes when he was on offense but then when he was on defense a bit he was doing a much better job of, of sort of pushing his left shoulder forward and yeah i thought vidal just just looked a little confused and you know i did also think that garcia looked a lot stronger in the ring than he had done uh, and again the very limited video that i've seen of him he looked a little bit soft in some of that video he didn't look soft to me in that ring and again maybe that's another thing when you're 19 maybe he's developing his man strength right. and that's just going to make him more of a handful more of a, a, a of a difficult challenge especially if you know he is going to be this this kind of pressure fighter he might have just had the strength and full credit to him to decide that this is a guy who hits really hard from mid-range i've got to walk inside him and walk him down and fight him in close and i'm going to do that 
and and that's what he did and, and he made it you know he made it work and so those are some of the reasons why maybe I called this so badly wrong. It's also possible that I just did a really shitty job of scouting and previewing this <laughs> fight. Uh, um, but full credit to Garcia, really, for making me look very stupid. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with the latter. I'm going to say sh a shitty job scouting is, is the most likely uh, <laughs> yeah. reasoning here. Um, I, I want to talk mostly here, not about Elijah Garcia, the boxer, but about Elijah Garcia, the absurdly mature 19-year-old. Yeah. Now, I guess becoming a dad at 16 and being a married father of two at 19 can speed up a person's maturation. Uh, but in the post-fight interview, his personality just seemed nothing like a 19-year-old, like, like a kid who should be a college freshman. Uh, he's, right. he's really mature and poised. And I also enjoyed him describing the punches he landed on the replays with bada-bings and bada-booms. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. But yeah, as, as a... You know, just as a person, he seems incredibly poised and polished. And certainly as a boxer, he's he's poised and polished for 19, really went to the body well. I was I was impressed all around and uh, I, I got it wrong, too. Maybe not as dramatically as you. I, I was saying a closer win for Vidal, but still I, I, I slept on just how much talent Garcia appears to have, at least based on this fight. Um, and by the way, let, let's quickly address uh, Moro uh, had a tremendous idea at the conclusion of the mm. co-feature. Uh, he suggested Garcia versus Resendez. Sign me up for that one. Uh, yeah. We don't have to go too deep on it at this stage in the game, but uh, do you happen to lean one way or the other right now in that matchup if it were made I, next? I can't. It's just hard to say because I, I just... I, watching Garcia, I, th I thought to myself, okay, he's much better than I thought. He'd be a pretty decent fighter in Vidal. Resendez, did he beat a good fighter in Herd? Or did he beat a shell of a good fighter in herd? And so it's a, a little bit difficult there, but God, it would be a fascinating clash, you know, with both yeah. guys obviously really interested in coming forward. Resendez would probably try to throw the greater quantity of punches from angles, and Garcia might just try to pull him into submission. I feel, I can't believe I'm saying this after dismissing him so utterly completely, but, you know, I probably wouldn't bet against Garcia in that matchup, but uh, I hope they get they both get a little bit of an opportunity to uh, to get some experience and pad their resumes before we see that. Although at some point that'll be a lovely fight to see. Yeah. Um. Anyway, because we both, especially I, did a spectacularly bad job um, of scouting Garcia, we got zero points in our picks contest for that fight. Um, we both acknowledged that what did happen in Resendez Heard could happen but neither of us quite had the courage to pull the trigger on it. So we got zero points there too. After four rounds of the main event, I thought we might be going 0 for 3, to be honest, but <laughs> we didn't. We did at least both pick Figueroa to beat Mag Sayo, but whereas you plumped for a late KO, I picked a unanimous decision, so I got three points to your one, with a net result that on not our finest night, it must be said, we are now tied up 21-21. All right, and uh, we have more picks to make. Uh, still a lot of year ahead of us, and uh, let's turn our attention uh, to the fight awaiting us this coming weekend on Showtime, Saturday at 10.45 p.m. Eastern, 7.45 Pacific, live from Sydney, Australia, where it will be Sunday afternoon. Uh, Tim Zhu puts his perfect record of 21-0 with 15 knockouts on the line against his toughest opponent to date, former 154-pound title holder Tony Harrison, who enters with a record of 29-3-1 with 21 stoppages. You'll recall that Zhu was supposed to challenge Jermel Charlo for the lineal title in January, but Charlo broke his hand in sparring, and rather than sit on his mandatory status waiting for Charlo, Zhu decided to face Harrison, the only fighter ever to hang a loss on Charlo. 
I'm not going to ask you, Kieran, what's at stake for the 28-year-old Zhu, because it's all pretty obvious from what I just laid out. His undefeated record, his shot at Charlo. He's risking them both. My question for you instead is this. Where on the line between brave and foolish do you think Zhu facing Harrison <laughs> in this spot falls? And uh, it's been nearly a year since Zhu made his U.S. and Showtime debut, getting off the canvas in the opening round to outpoint Terrell Gachet. What are your reflections on that performance, and, and how high are you on the son of Hall of Famer Costa Zhu at this stage of his career? I'm not going to say it's foolish, because he's what he's doing is he's betting on himself, and that's what you want boxers to do. Um, he wants to be a world champion, and if you think you're good enough to be a world champion, you need to be able to beat Tony Harrison. Not that I'm saying Harrison's a pushover, absolutely not. I think quite the opposite. But yeah, you have to believe in yourself. Um, I guess, you know, in terms of like the calculations, look, Zoo's going to be a big draw in Australia, whatever happens. Harrison's by far the toughest opponent he's faced, on paper anyway, if he loses, unless he gets utterly dominated. Um, he'll probably get credit for taking that step up. He'll still be a draw in Australia, and he'll have the opportunity to put himself back into title contention. Um, you know, and if he wins, obviously that makes the eventual reschedule showdown with Charlo that much bigger. Yeah. Uh, the problem, of course, is that you have to make it to that title shot. And when you have one basically in your hands, it's, you know, it's risky to sort of, you know, put it in danger there. If he loses, he might not ever get that shot back. Right. Um, and yeah, you you can say that you have to earn a title shot and you have to be able to beat everyone who's in your way, but gosh, one punch can make a lot of difference in a fight and so in a career. Um, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about, uh, it's, it's been a while since we played Make the Match on the podcast, but oh, right. if we were to do one for Tim Zoo, it occurred to me, Tony Harrison is absolutely one I would pick as a fight for the fans, and it is absolutely not one I would pick <laughs> as, as Sue's matchmaker right, right. now. Um, I understand why he's doing it. I give him full credit for it. Um, if he if he wins, if he pulls it off, that's great. But oh my goodness, what a what a risk here. Um, but this is what we ask fighters to do. So um, I, I, as for where I stand on Sue, here's what I said in our post fight podcast after Sue Gaucher. I you asked me to grade him, give him a report card, mm. and I had offense B plus. Defense C minus overall grade B shows promise room for improvement. Um, I noted that I liked the fact he was patient with his punches, um, that although Gaucher had lost a good opposition, nobody had dominated him the way that Zoo did. And that Zoo did all this on his US debut and after being knocked down in the first round, as you mentioned, his body punching was 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 solid. But I noted that he squared up an awful lot and that he was very open. Um, his head movement wasn't great. And I said then, don't think he's ready for the best of the best at 154 pounds, like Dramel Charlo. Um, hmm. But I did say that maybe his next fight should be someone like a Julian Williams or a Jason Rosario or a Jarrett Hurd. Um, someone who has been there and done that. And I said that a year ago about Jarrett Hurd. I don't think that anymore. Right. Um, and actually, I think Tony Harrison's between the two. He's not the best of the best, but he can compete with the best. And he has done. Um, and he, but he certainly hasn't shown any signs of being that guy who's been as far up the hill as he's going to be and is, and is heading back down again. Um, we said Gaucher was a step up for Zoo at the time. Harrison's a step up again. Um, so this is tough for him. But, you know, an interesting note on Harrison's record, 29-3-1, as you mentioned, is that the three losses all came by stoppage. They all came in round nine or later. And they were all in fights 
that were close on the cards at the time, with Harrison either ahead or even on at least one card in every one of those bouts. So his durability is a question mark. But he did look great the last time out himself, last April on Showtime, shutting out Sergio Garcia over 10 rounds. And he's coming in very confident. He says of Zoo, he's so basic. The guy comes straight forward. He has one gear. Um, also, in honor of the release of Creed 3, uh, let's note that he compared fighting Zoo in Australia to Rocky fighting Drago in Russia. Um, Eric, what's the react to here? Uh, your thoughts on Harrison's upside, his downside, and his attitude toward facing Zoo? You know, the, the Rocky Four comparison ain't bad. Uh, Zoo has shown some slight hints of some robotic machine-like Drago qualities. Um, now, uh, I, for one, don't think Tony Harrison is going to get the crowd at Kudos Bank Arena chanting his <laughs> name or chanting USA. Uh, this won't end the uh, the Cold War between America and Australia. Uh, but, uh, but it's not a terrible comparison. Uh, and his assessment of Zoo isn't terrible either. He is somewhat one-note and predictable. But that one note is a hell of a note. Uh, it's like... Uh, you know, we know what Shaquille O'Neal is going to do. He's going to get the ball down low and turn around and dunk it. You know exactly what he's going to do, but you still have no hope of stopping it. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and and to a lesser degree, that's Tim Zhu. You have him scouted? Great. That doesn't mean you can stop him from beating you up. Uh, but I, I do think Harrison's confidence is genuine. And, and it'll serve him well as long as... He doesn't get overconfident and forget that his chin is kind of spotty. He shouldn't be so confident as to go out of his way to taste Zoo's power. Um, this is an occasion on which he needs to be the boxer. He needs to be disciplined and sharp and limit the number of times he stands still in front of Zoo. Harrison's a talented fighter, always has been. Um, whether you think he deserved the decision in the first Charlo fight or not, he had two tough, close fights against Charlo. That tells you this guy is capable of fighting at a championship level. He boxed beautifully against Sergio Garcia. He's experienced. He has decent pop. Tony Harrison is a really tough out. Mm. If he had an iron chin, he might be undefeated right now and, and would be the favorite in this fight. Um, he's maybe the best example in the whole sport of here's a boxer who can beat the top dog in his division on a given night or he can lose to a journeyman on a given night. Mm. His mm. range of outcomes is very wide. And uh, and Zoo, there are just a lot of unknowns around him. So that makes this a, a fascinating fight to predict. So let's get to it. Uh, this is just a single fight broadcast, no undercard to discuss. So it's picks time. Kieran, who you got in Zoo Harrison? I find this a very, very tough call. Uh, I think Tony Harrison is a better all-round fighter than Tim Zoo right now. Um he only has that one win in a little over four years, but that's misleading. Um, the win over Charlo was December 2018. The loss on the rematch was one year later. He didn't fight at all in 2020. Um, then he had a draw in 2021 and the Garcia win last year. He's just not been active enough over the last five or six years, but that's the way of things in boxing um, nowadays. But his quality of opposition during that time has been... And much of his career has been significantly greater than, than what Zeus faced. I think Harrison's faster. I think he's more skilled. But, you know, as you said, he's clearly not as robust. So, yeah, you mentioned that remarkable consistency in Harrison's defeats. You know, those late fades and stoppages after strong starts. And sometimes quite sudden fades. Uh, the question to me is whether Zoo can repeat 
repeat that in the way that, say, Charlo did in their rematch. Um, one thing he does have in his favor, of course, is that the fight's in Australia. That doesn't just mean he's got home support. It means Harrison has had a long way to travel. And will that affect him? Or has he been in town long enough? I, I think I think Harrison's going to start this fight well. I think he's going to outbox Zhu, show him angles, beat him to the punch. The question to me is what happens then after, say, round six or seven, can Harrison keep it going or can Zoo wear him down? I have a feeling that Harrison has a little bit of a late career uptick in him. I think he's got enough. I think he wins this. And Zoo's defense at times is so bad that I'm almost tempted to say that, that Harrison does such a number on him, he stops him. And I walked right up to the edge of doing that, but I think that he ends up playing it safe, like you suggested he he will. And even in a, I'm going to say that anywhere else he would win as a unanimous decision, and here it ends up being a split decision for okay. Tony Harrison. All right, well reasoned as you make the bold, mild upset pick. Um, as a betting man, I know for sure which way I'm going with my money. Uh, Harrison is like plus 200. Zoo is, is like minus 250. No question that Harrison is live at that price. And, and Zoo is a stay away at his price. Um, but, you know, there are no odds adjustments in our picks competition. I think there's something like a 40% chance Tony Harrison wins. And if that's what I think, that means I have to pick Tim Zoo. Um it's it's that tendency from Harrison to fade and to get clipped that does it for me. Even if he's well ahead through eight rounds, I won't mm-hmm. trust that a bet on him is safe. Uh, not to mention, as you were just saying about switching from unanimous to split decision, it's in Australia. If he's winning rounds narrowly, if Harrison is, he'd better win eight or nine of them in order to get the decision. Um, there are so many possible outcomes here, but but I think the one I'll go with is Harrison is boxing beautifully, but Zoo is really damn good himself and and effective and and is right there with him. It's a close fight through eight, nine, ten. Then Zoo drops Harrison late, but Tony Harrison is totally prepared for this fight, in great shape, finds a way to get through it and last until the final bell and loses by decision for the first time in his career with a a late knockdown or two, making it a non-controversial unanimous decision for Tim Zhu. But but this is a fight where Zhu KO, Harrison KO, Harrison boxing lesson decision, even controversial draw. Every possible result is is on the table here. I'm really psyched for this fight. And yep. um and I'm actually jealous of the Australians who get to watch it on a nice lazy Sunday afternoon. <laughs> that, they should have done this at like eleven PM Saturday, Sydney time, which would be yep. seven AM US East Coast time. Uh that that would be perfect for me. This this whole idea of catering to US time zones really backfired on us water right. dudes. <laughs> Seriously. All right, with that. It is time to play the fight game and inevitably make a bunch of Wordle references that our audience couldn't care less about. Uh, Kieran, are you ready? Well, I'm on a Wordle in two guesses streak, so uh, oh. bring it on. All right. <laughs> there, Wordle references out of the way already. Okay, yeah. here we go. Um, all right. I don't mean to create undue pressure. Uh, but you did this to me last time, so I'm doing it. I, I, here's what I'm going to say. I think this week it is possible to get this off the first clue. Not likely, okay. 
but it's possible if your brain goes to the right place. The clue. Is it Muhammad Ali against Cleveland Williams? <laughs> it is not. Ah, but you had, and now you lost your first, first guess. guess. No, okay, all right, all right, I'll give you another shot at this. Here's okay. your clue. By winning this fight, the winner achieved multiple historical firsts. Um, let me think. I, I, I have one fight in mind, but it kind of it involves somebody winning uh, a couple of alphabet belts, and I just can't imagine you going for this with a first guess. Of being somebody who won alphabet belts, I just—it is important to know your podcast partner and and his tendencies, and so that is a, that is a good assumption that I don't consider multiple uh, that I don't consider alphabet belt victories to be of great historical importance. Uh, yeah. Do you want to throw the uh, guess out there anyway, just so yeah, I know what you're thinking? Yeah, Donnie Lalonde. Okay, is what I had in my. You know, you know why I'm saying because like, yes, then absolutely. he helped. Yeah, yes, yeah. Okay, but... no, that's a, that's a reasonable uh, a reasonable guess for this clue. It is not the answer. But uh, but you are thinking about historical first history being made. So, OK, uh, let's move on to clue two. Both winner and loser are in the International Boxing Hall of Fame, as is a Mexican boxer who won a 130 pound title bout on the undercard. Huh. And I and I and I say this clue knowing full well if you didn't randomly stumble into it on one, two probably isn't getting you much closer yet. But uh, but it can does I, give you I... it gives you some more information. It may help give you a time frame if you're able to figure out who the Mexican boxer is. Was the Me- am I allowed to guess the Mexican boxer can, and not you... give up my second guess for the fight? You, you can certainly talk it through and not necessarily get a response from me, but at least for the audience, let them know who you're thinking it could be. So one would think it might be, say, Eric Morales, but he wouldn't be a co-main at, at the time that he was fighting at 130, I would that, have thought. That, that is, I, I will tell you it is not Eric Morales. Who are the Mexican fighters who might win 130 who, who would not be main eventers? So um, I'm wondering if I need to shift my focus in terms of time. Is this farther back than I am thinking about? Um National Hall of Fame, and there was a Mexican fighter who won. I mean, the the Mexican fighters who immediately come to mind who might be winning belts at 130. I I have a hard time picturing them being in co-mains at the time that they were winning 130 pound belts. Right, and and Unless just to, it, I'm gonna I'm gonna read the, that clue again carefully because there's one detail that I'm not sure if you're think if you, oh, okay. if it slipped through. But both winner and loser are in the International Boxing Hall of yeah. Fame. As is a Mexican boxer who ah, won a 130-pound title bout on the right. other card. No, so I'm, he too I'm, is yeah, a Hall of right. Famer. I wanted to, yeah. It seemed it seemed you may have been that yeah. not absorbing that part. Yeah, although that doesn't really it doesn't help necessarily sense, help you. <laughs> I just wanted that, to be like, clear. What is it? What is that person doing on the undercard? Unless it was a stacked Don King card. Would you tell me if it was a stacked Don King card or not? Or will you not um, even you know, that? I'm not I'm not sure off the top of my head who promoted this, but it's not like one of those okay. specifically well-known stacked Don King. It's not King. Revenge the Rematches it type is, quality. It, it is stuff. not. It is not. Okay, I'm 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 not close yet. No. Okay. All right. All right. We're taking a big leap here now, though, with the third one. I'm going to add to the pressure by saying this, but 
I kind of think you're going to get it here. But we'll see. Wow, now I realize how much it sucks when you do that. I'm really <laughs> it, sorry I keep doing that to you. All right, well, we'll, we'll agree uh, henceforth not to do that to each other anymore. Um, okay. All right, here we go. Yeah. This fight produced one of the most famous post-fight interviews in boxing history. And, and I'm, I'm going to now sort of, as you're thinking that through, I'm going to refresh with all three clues. I'll say them all. Uh, by winning this fight, the winner achieved multiple historical firsts. Both winner and loser are in the International Boxing Hall of Fame, as is a Mexican boxer who won a 130-pound title bout on the undercard. And this fight produced one of the most famous post-fight interviews in boxing history. And you know what? I'll get a tiny bit more specific. It was not an in-ring post-fight interview. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, because I, 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 some of the great... Okay, all right. So forget about the in-ring one. Okay. Post-fight interviews. Really? <laughs> I'm... I'm completely drawing a blank here. Okay. I'm trying. This game yeah. is so tricky in that as you're writing the clues, you're th obviously exactly. obviously knowing the answer from the start. You're like, oh, this clue will tell them a little. This clue will tell them a little right. more. Exactly. But if they're not, if they're starting like like me last time with uh, with with Jack Johnson, if they're not kind of in the ballpark early on, then yeah. it takes a while to land in the right spot. But do you want to move on to clue four? Yeah, I think I might have to. Okay. Here's your fourth clue. Okay. That famous post-fight interview was with the loser, but we interviewed the winner last June in Canastota. So now this we narrows did. it down, if you can, as it long does. as you can. Okay. You, have you got it now? No. Okay. But, <laughs> let's, uh, so... So let me think. So I'm going to guess that when I was interviewed by the loser. Um... We interviewed the winner in Canastota, but the but the post-fight interview, the famous post-fight interview was with the guy who lost the fight. Yeah, the post-fight interview is not registering with me at all. Mm, okay. um, I wonder if it will subsequently. So I'm trying to think. We interviewed it so... Uh, uh, be Michael Spinks? It could be. It's Michael Spinks. Uh huh. It, you you need to say the other fighter involved. So I'm gonna guess Larry Holmes. Uh huh. And uh, the winner achieved multiple historical firsts. So so which? So it's so I'm gonna say it's the first one mm -hmm. where he became the first light heavyweight champion to become heavyweight champion you have got it michael spinks w12 larry holmes september 21st 1985 uh actually actually i said w12 but was it w15 i think it was it was 15. probably w15 yeah, wasn't it should it? have been yeah. A, yeah it's a 15 um so the the historical firsts there are two uh, three, well, actually three in a way, if you count the first to defeat Larry Holmes. Uh, but but the mm. two historical first, first light heavyweight champ to win the heavyweight title and first brothers to both hold the heavyweight title. Ah, yep. Um, the Mexican great who was on the undercard was Julio Cesar Chavez, who was 47-0 and 0 
and went to 48 and 0 by outpointing Dwight Pratchett on this. Yeah, other yeah. Card. It's so funny because I thought about Chavez and I thought, when was he ever on a on a co-main? But yeah, he probably back then. Yeah, he was right. just about a co-main. That's right. where I was getting stuck. Yeah, I could tell you were kind of not not thinking along the right lines there uh, with with that. Not that that would have given it away, but at least it would have put you in the right mid 80s time frame if you'd thought of Chavez. Um, yeah. The famous post-fight interview, do you, re- do you remember? Uh, no. So Not this was where, in his locker room afterwards, all pissed off about having everyone built it up as Larry Holmes is going to equal Rocky Marciano at 49. No, if he wins this, he, that was where he famously said, Rocky couldn't carry my jockstrap. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And, and so here, the fifth clue would have been, uh, the loser was in a foul mood because this 1985 fight spoiled his perfect 48 no record. All so. right, okay, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yes, uh, the condensed Rolodex of who did we interview in Canastota helped help, help, help you focus <laughs> it instead. Yes. Ah, uh, <laughs> you was... got it. But this was this was like a word. This was a you, you said few. That's what Wordle says when you get it in six. Few. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yes, yeah. so if you get it in six here, you get nothing. Right, there is no six. <laughs> yeah, six is, is you're kicked off the podcast, permanently replaced by a new co-host. Yeah, yeah, precisely. As I as I expressed to someone who wrote to us on Twitter to say how much they like the game, that I'm, I I live in constant fear of <laughs> of failing, but fear keeps us alive. Yeah, sure, something like that, or and <laughs> right. our hearts beating as well. Yeah, my exactly. understanding of biology. Exactly. Exactly. Very good. Well done. Um. <laughs> Let's move along to the news and the main event, particularly if you're doing a new segment for a Showtime podcast, but really I think for any boxing podcast this week is Showtime announcing three new triple headers, one in April, one in May and one in June. Uh, let's take them on at a time and do rapid fire takes. The April 8th card is one we knew about, but now all the details are out there. It's in Carson, California. The £154 main event pits uh, somebody else we interviewed in Canastota, Sebastian Sandora, against Brian Mendoza. Plus, on the undercard, £140 prospect Brandon Lee meets Pedro Campa, and unbeaten featherweights Luis Nunez and Christian Olivo collide. Uh, Eric, your 60-second or so reaction to these matchups. Well, we knew about Fundora Mendoza. A uh, reminder that uh, Breadman thought Mendoza would be live in this one. Um, I'm just always excited to see Fundora, despite the last performance of his being yep. a bit flat. Uh, Brandon Lee against Kampa, that's new. Uh, we hadn't heard about that before. This is a step up for Lee. He's hit a few speed bumps of late, uh, got badly hurt against Will Madera two fights ago, but battled back to win. He should beat Kampa, who's nothing special and got stopped by Teofimo Lopez recently, but but Lee is at a different stage of his career than Teofimo. This could be a meaningful test. And uh, Nunez Olivo, we've seen Nunez on Showbox. He's the one with the nickname The Twist. Comes out to Chubby Checker doing The Twist. Oh, that's right. Um, Olivo from Mexico, I'm totally unfamiliar with him, but I trust in Showtime, the matchmaking. Exactly. Uh, I see 18-0 versus 20-0, and and I trust that it's probably a competitive pairing. Uh, on May 13th, at a site to be announced, it's an all-140-pound card, and the main event sees Raleigh Romero return from his loss to Javante Davis and take on undefeated Alberto Pueo. Also, Gary Antoine Russell and Kent Cruz square off in a battle of unbeaten fighters, and veteran Rancis Barthelemy faces Omar Juarez. Kieran, your initial take here? I might be a little bit less excited about this card than the other two, but or not because I don't think it will be very good. I just find Romero an unsympathetic character and have a hard time motivating myself to get excited to see him. Um, 
But it is a fascinating style matchup, though. We we did recently see Pueyo score a, a, a split decision win on Showtime against a, a, an aggressive fighter, and he'll be faced with another aggressive fighter in Romero, or the one who doesn't sort of throw relentlessly the way that Bajrizan Akhmadov, who was the guy who defeated last time out, uh, does, but who does have that massive one-punch power. Uh, it's always interesting and good to see Antoine, the last undefeated Russell brother, um, who is maintaining the family tradition of entering the ring once a year. Right. Um, Kent Cruz looks on paper to be overmatched here, but I just said that last week about uh, <laughs> a, a fight, and right. so once again, I, I think a better off trusting in the Showtime matchmaking here than in my initial 10-second analysis. Um, and Bartholomew and Juarez, it's just an interesting crossroads bout. I mean, Bartholomew's definitely at veteran status now, and even though he still only had the two losses, I think it's clear that he's never going to take that extra step up to, to like, true, true world championship level. And Juarez is this young, undefeated guy with not much of a KO record, but it's a real opportunity here for him to add by far the biggest gulf of his career to his record and, and see if he can climb the ladder there. Um, and lastly, on June 24th, the new kind of home of Showtime Boxing, the Armory of Minneapolis, plays host to a middleweight showdown between Carlos Adames and Julian J. Rock Williams. Well, comebacking 154-pounder Erickson Lubin takes on Luis Arias. And 115-pound titleist Fernando Martinez of Argentina faces Jade Bonea of the Philippines. Both of them undefeated. There are other fight cards expected to be added to the spring's Showtime schedule still. But this is the last of the three revealed as of now. So what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, yeah, on the topic of those other cards to be added, there was a whole video that Showtime put out that included yep. names like Spence and Thurman and Boots Ennis, David Morrell, Danny Garcia, both Charlos. So, yeah, lots more to come. But uh, this looks like an excellent Minneapolis card, another trio of fights to delight the fans at that venue. J-Rock is in last chance territory, kind of a must win for him here. Adamas can bang. This is a good crossroads main event. Lubin uh, wisely took more than a year off, or at least it'll be more than a year off by the time of this fight uh, after uh, what he went through against Fondora. This seems the right level of opposition for him to get a win, but not have it be a walkover. And uh, Martinez, we saw him beat uh, Jerwin Ancajas twice. Bornea, kind of the unknown here. He's 18-0, nickname Hurricane. That's promising. Boring fighters don't get nicknamed Hurricane. That's my hardcore analysis there. There you go. Uh, on our news undercard, the biggest news is that of an undisclosed injury suffered by Amanda Serrano, knocking her out of her May 20th rematch with Katie Taylor in Ireland. It's possible the fight will be rescheduled for a slightly later date, but it's also possible Taylor will keep the date and move up to 140 pounds to face Chantelle Cameron, an option Taylor said on Instagram she is considering. Uh, speaking of injuries, Callum Smith suffered a training injury just over a week out from his fight next Saturday against Powell Stepien. So that bout is off, but the card goes on without that fight, leaving the biggest fight of this coming weekend, other than Sue Harrison, of course, as the heavyweight meeting in Paris between Tony Yoka and Carlos Takam. The alphabet group whose belt Terence Crawford holds has ordered him to face Alexis Roca, a fringe welterweight contender at best in any non-alphabet rankings. Uh, two quality undercard bouts were announced for the April 8th ESPN card, headlined by Shakur Stevenson. It'll be heavyweight prospect Jared Big Baby Anderson stepping up against Showbox alum George Arias, and lightweight Keyshawn Davis facing his most credible opponent yet in Anthony Yigit. And lastly, in devastatingly sad news, 
Adrian Broner and BLK Prime have split, ending their three-fight deal without a single fight taking place. I would almost feel bad for Adrian Broner if he were anyone other than Adrian Broner. Uh, Kieran, your thoughts on any of these news items? You know, we were talking at the top of the podcast about how we like fighters to take bets on themselves and, and take on really tough challenges. We want our fighters to fight. I, that's what Katie Taylor would be doing if, if she faces Chantel Cameron. I mean, it's a very different situation from, say, Tim Zhu taking on Tony Harrison. Um, Taylor's already made it to the top and um, and she's already a Hall of Famer. But um, Cameron is a naturally bigger fighter than her. She's younger. She's fresher. If she were to fight Chantel Cameron instead of Amanda Serrano, that would be a genuine threat. And that would be just another sign of, of what a tremendous champion Katie Taylor is. It would be an exceptional alternative. Um, and then at the other end of the scale, we have the prospect of Terence Crawford against Alexis Rocca. Um, like you said, he's a fringe contender at best. He does have a win over Blair Cobbs, who's a fringe contender at best himself. Right. But there's nothing to suggest he's even remotely ready um, to, to face somebody like Terence Crawford. Um, those heady days of Spence Crawford imminence feel as if they are receding ever further. <laughs> yes. Unless those fights to be announced later on that Showtime video include, you know, that one big one that we're still looking forward to. Um, uh, if it's at all possible, I'm sure those guys are working hard. Uh, trying to make it happen, but it feels like that ship is sailing. Uh, I love the ESPN undercard, and it's going to pour a 40 to the curb for Bronner and BLK Prime's relationship. <laughs> what you going to do? It is what it is. Indeed. All right. Uh, we finish with the top five countdown. Interesting assignment you gave me last week. The top five biggest first impressions that boxers have made on me. My list ended up kind of an interesting mix of stages of fighters' careers at which mm. I first saw them, as you'll see. Um, but I will make it clear that I didn't include anyone who predated my time on the boxing beat, uh, which that okay. started in 1997. Like, yeah, I saw Mike Tyson fight when I was a kid, and I'm sure he blew me away, although I think I'd read about him in Sports Illustrated before I ever saw him fight. Uh, but anyway, you know, I'm not going to put someone like him on the list. And like, just an example... I had never seen Oscar De La Hoya fight before I started covering boxing. I had heard the name, knew who he was, but hadn't seen him fight. So my first time seeing him, he was already like number one or number two pound for pound. I feel like that shouldn't count. So th these are all fighters whose general first impression on any audiences came after 1997. Um, and before I get into my list, one note about someone not on the list who I think is maybe the most obvious person for a lot of boxing fans to include. He may well be on your list, uh, but I will explain why he's not on mine. I did not include Manny Pacquiao, who, okay. of course, blew away everyone watching him in his U.S. debut against Lela Ledwaba. But I had been editing fight reports for the ring about him for like three years by then. Maybe I'd never seen him fight, but I was well familiar with him. Okay. I knew Ledwaba was in tough that night. Don't quite think it counts as a first impression for me, even if it was at least the first full fight of his that I had seen. So I uh, just okay. wanted to get that out of the way because people are going to be wondering why I'm not naming Manny Pacquiao. Because right. he was kind of the first name that crossed my mind when you mentioned the assignment, but it just doesn't quite apply for me. 
So, yep. Spoiler alert: He is number one on my list. Okay, because I've never go. heard of him. I had never heard of him at all. <laughs> all right, so. there you go. Uh, all right, we don't have the same lists. We know that much. <laughs> um, so let's get to my number five. Uh, this is a fighter who was four years and twenty-seven fights into his pro career by the time I first saw him fight in twenty twelve. He'd been around, but had been fighting exclusively in Mexico. I knew nothing about him when he challenged the super-duper hardcore fans' favorite little pound-for-pound level fighter, Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez, in Los Angeles. I'm talking, of course, about Juan Francisco Estrada. Hmm. Um, I presume Cliff Rold was familiar with him, maybe Lee (laughs) Groves, too, but I wasn't. Uh, And then he went 12 shockingly competitive rounds with Chocolatito, and how could you not be impressed? Now, did I know I was looking at a future Hall of Famer? Maybe not quite, but I knew he was going to be really good. He already was really good. He was uh, someone I definitely wanted to see more of. He fought on competitive terms with one of the three or four best fighters in the world at the time. Juan Francisco Estrada made a hell of a first impression on me. Oh, interesting. I uh, have the other side of that uh, of that matchup on my list as well, <laughs> actually. So um, For the same I, I fight? I... That was your first time no, seeing Chocolate? Okay, same, okay. No, for a, a different, different fight. fight but, Got yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't even think about my first impression of Chocolatito. That was another thing tricky about this I'm not, that I'll discuss some more, but I'm not sure whether you ran into it with some fighters. You knew you were impressed early on, but you didn't necessarily 100%. remember what the first time you saw him was. Yep. yep. Okay. Um, so at number four, uh, this was a guy I forgot about on my first pass through this. And I kept scouring a little more, making sure I wasn't forgetting anyone. And I came across his name and uh, realized, oh, yeah, he's got to be on my list. He had talent and athleticism that jumped off the screen when I first saw him on ESPN2 Friday Night Fights, making his US TV debut in his ninth pro fight in 2008. I'm talking about the Cuban dynamo, Yuriorkis Gamboa. Mm -hmm. Uh, He blew out Johnny Edwards in one round that night with power punches from all sorts of angles. He went on to a good but not great career. He had a lot of talent, and a whole lot of technical flaws to go with it. And he fell short against the elite fighters like Terrence Crawford and Javante Davis. But if you caught him any time in those early days, whether you were seeing him blow someone out or seeing him get decked and get off the canvas to come back and win, you had to be dazzled by the explosiveness and the potential of Yuri Orcas Gamboa. Yeah, I still feel, I, I still don't quite know what happened with that career of Yuri Orcas Gamboa. I certainly can't tell you when was the first time I saw him. But... Okay. Um, but yeah, there was that. There was a period where I thought he was just going to be really, really terrific, and and then before you know it, Top Rank was trying to feed him to Brandon Rios, and then he left, and he signed with Fifty Cent, and then he's up against Terence Crawford at like seventeen pounds higher than he should have been, right, and right. it just never recovered from that really. And uh, yeah, just just strange. A, like you said, a good but not truly great career. It's a shame, really. Yeah, but uh, but I share with you. Like there were times I would watch Gamboa early on. I thought I thought it was mesmerizing. His balance is uh-huh. um, almost Hamed-like in yes. many respects. Yep, that's uh, a good comparison. Ab- absolutely terrific. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, at number three, I have a fighter who, like Juan Francisco Estrada, had been around a little while and actually had one loss already by the time I first saw him. He had been fighting mostly in Argentina, a little bit in Germany, before making his U.S. debut at the Staples Center in L.A. on June 27, 2009, in the role of B-side against young Victor Ortiz. I am talking about Marcos <laughs> Maidana. Uh, he'd been a pro for five years. I knew of him. 
He had lost a split decision in a challenge for a belt in Germany in his previous bout, but I'd never seen him fight. And, uh, Wow, uh, what an introduction. He was down three times in the first two rounds against Ortiz, but also dropped Ortiz once in the opening round, and then again in the sixth, convincing Ortiz to surrender. And we were all very high on Victor Ortiz at the time. Uh, we thought he could be the next American superstar, but Maidana stopped him in his tracks. This kind of went on to become his thing, uh, that he was at his best yeah. when he was the B-side, who either beat a Broner or pushed a Mayweather to his limit. He made a hell of a first impression on me against Ortiz, uh, became a guy I couldn't wait to see again. What a good call. That's a that's a great call. You know, it's funny. Victor Ortiz was one of those who, like, I remember being quite high on him quite early and that he was absolutely one of those who I thought, oh, yeah, right. Maybe Ortiz should be on my list. And I can't remember the first fight that I saw him <laughs> right. in. And so I can't pinpoint that first fight, but that's great because I hadn't heard of Maidana before that fight either. Right. Um, no, terrific call. Yeah, okay. very good. All right. Uh, the, the, my top two here, I think, probably fit more with what you had in mind with this of not taking guys who were several years into their career uh, by the time I saw them. Uh, so at number two, actually a fighter that I was dazzled by long before most boxing fans. Uh, in fact, long before he turned pro. My first impression of this fighter came at the 2008 Olympics the Olympics where I watched the boxing closer than any other. I was mm. DVRing everything on multiple channels and watching it all fast forwarding liberally, but still uh, it was beyond obvious that this little 20 year old featherweight from Ukraine, Vasil Lomachenko was <laughs> the best boxer in Beijing and one of the finest amateurs I'd ever laid eyes on. Lomachenko won his five fights at that Olympics by a combined score of 58, 13, None of the fights were close, competitive at all. Just he was such a ridiculously skilled little southpaw. I had to wait five years for him to turn pro. Uh, but as we all know, he lived up to my first impression. He's a future Hall of Famer. He reached the top of pound for pound lists. One of the most skillful fighters of his generation with a, a truly unique and mesmerizing style that stood out from all the other couple hundred or so boxers in, in Beijing. You know, it's interesting. I very nearly put Lomachenko on my list. I was ringside for his pro debut and, and actually mm -hmm. for basically most of his first several fights. Yeah. And, and I was utterly blown away. I mean, we, there's, we, I never made a secret about how highly I thought of Vasily Lomachenko. And, but I thought everyone might be cheating a bit in that he came into that pro debut so hyped True. that... Um, I kind of was expecting him to be amazing. And I actually even look back at it again while, while thinking about it. It was ridiculous. I mean, no pro debut right. looks like that. I mean, it was absurd. And I, and I kind of wanted to put it on my list because I was there and I saw it and he's so amazing. And I was, I mean, there's no reason for me to have excluded it. I didn't put any, any conditions like, oh, if somebody said he was good before you watched it, then you couldn't include him. It was all very random. But I just, I, I just eased off. I just chickened out of including it on my list for that reason, because I thought, well, is that just too easy and obvious? But watching him in the Olympics, that counts. Okay, good. I'm glad. That definitely uh, counts. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Now you are going to love my pick for number one, okay. Karen. You okay. do not have a monopoly on expressing love for Miguel Cotto. Oh. Uh, I don't believe we've ever talked about his pro debut, but I remember it distinctly. It was on a Friday Night Fights card in 2001. Top Rank was hyping up their newly signed Olympian. I remember I was out at a bar in New York with friends. There was a TV with ESPN on. No sound. Uh, I was 
almost certainly the only person at the bar watching the TV. Miguel Cotto versus one Jason Doucette. And the smooth delivery of the punches, the uh, graceful footwork, especially the perfectly thrown left hooks, just leapt right out at me. Everyone in boxing at that time was buzzing about this new Francisco Bajado kid who had just turned pro. <laughs> but in two minutes and 12 seconds, Cotto became my favorite prospect from that Olympic class. The opposition wasn't much. The fight didn't last long, but you could tell that this 20-year-old kid was the goods, was polished, and was going to go far. I know you fell much deeper in love with him than I did as the years wore on, Kieran, but on February 23rd, 2001, I loved Miguel Cotto at least as much as you, perhaps more if you were unaware of him at that point. I was indeed, It's funny because Miguel is on my list, but I was. I certainly was not aware of him at that point. At all. Um, I mean, I wasn't covering boxing then. I, I didn't even I didn't show up ringside until late 2003. Right. Um, uh, so, yeah, no, I really wasn't aware of him at all then. But that's that's awesome. So, so he was mine one. first like officially. Yes. Yes. That's <laughs> you right. stole him from me. <laughs> it was just it was natural. It was you were two timing on him with Arturo Gadian. Actually, three timing on him with Arturo Gadian making board. Oh, I, so, I got around, know. Karen. Yeah, that's me. what they're saying. <laughs> anyway, with Miguel Cotto, now we know you got my sloppy seconds. <laughs> there you go. But look, I had it's it's funny because I kind of did have in mind at first exactly what you had for the top two, and I could come up with none of those like that myself. Hmm. And partly because I couldn't remember the exact fight. Yep. Um <laughs> and, and so for example, like I remember watching very early Nigel Benn. There was when I was still living in the UK, there was this show on one of the networks. I think it was on like Friday nights. It was kind of the equivalent of our old USA Tuesday night fights. A lot of good up and comers. Um, and it was sort of like a combo show box slash Tuesday night fight slash boxing after dark kind of thing. And Ben, I think they, I think it was monthly. And Ben was like their regular thing from the time he was six and oh, seven and oh. And I just couldn't remember when I remember watching him. Right. I remember thinking, oh, my God, this guy, like, he's going to be something. Couldn't tell you what fight it was. Just right. couldn't. Same deal with Nassim Hamed. Had the same kind hmm. of thing. And um, I remember I was also very high on Adrian Bronner earlier. Early. Yeah. Yeah. What was the fight? Don't remember. Jeff Lacey. <laughs> what was the fight? Don't remember. Gennady Golovkin, I was watching before he showed up in the U.S. and on HBO. Hmm. Watching him on YouTube a lot. But, but they weren't live. And which particular fight? Couldn't tell you. So, so there was a lot of that. Um, I wanted to try and think of young prospects who I really enjoyed watching. The most recent one time I remember being super excited about someone on Showbox was when it was Xavier Martinez. Oh, right. I remember that. Um, but no, so the ones that I could come up with weren't, you know, I, I did put one in there about, I thought it was important to put one in there about a guy who I was very high on and who did not pan out at all. I put uh, David Price. Yep, yep. Um, he was already pretty into it, uh, into his career um, when he demolished Audley Harrison inside a round in October 2012. Thought we might be seeing the next great heavyweight, but A, it was Audley Harrison, and it turned out that Price's chin was made out of, you know, chips. Right. Um, the Chocolatito Gonzalez fight I saw, it was on a so-so stream of a card. It must have been back then just some kind of illegal stream that I found from Cancun that was actually headlined by Juan Manuel Marquez and he hmm. whooped Omar Salado inside seven rounds okay. and the super hardcores like the 
the Cliff Rolls, the Dougie Fishers were mentioning him, and but it, but I saw him and I thought, wow, who the hell is this guy? He was super good. That was my Chocolatito Gonzalez one. My Miguel Cotto one was the first time that I actually remember seeing him. I'm sure I must have seen him before, but I was ringside when he beat the snot out of Victoriano Sosa inside oh, yes. four rounds right. um, in early 20, 2004, and that's when I fell irrevocably and hopelessly <laughs> in love. And there was one that I put on here before either of us were covering boxing because it just sprang to mind. Uh, it was the night of the young heavyweights on HBO and it was David Tua decapitating John Ruiz. Mm, yeah, um, I had never point. heard of David Tua before then. And Pacquiao is my number one. So okay. anyway, I, I'm sure you had other runners up, but I just interrupted you from. No, 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 that's all right. That, that was a good interruption. Uh, but uh, so one of my runners up, uh, you, you did just mention that David Price sprung right to mind for me as a guy I fell for big time who very much did not pan out, but uh, he was the one that I couldn't put in my top five. Cause I looked back at his record and couldn't pick out which fight was the first one of his. I watched, I think I saw him a time or two before that oddly Harrison, fight, okay. but I'm not sure. So hard to say he's an all time top five first impression guy. If I can't recall the details of the first time I saw him um, similar category, Joel Julio. Uh, I, don't oh my gosh yeah uh that is the correct response um i don't quite remember where and when i first saw him but looking back at his box wreck um it leads me to believe it probably was ko1 arthur medina deep on the mayweather gaddy undercard in atlantic city but i can't be totally sure um mm. so i'm putting him in my honorable mention and and by the way are you ready to be massively depressed yeah, I'll take that as a yes. Yeah, uh, Joel Julio <laughs> is 38, still fighting, record now no. of 39 and 15, and he's lost 11 fights in a row. Uh, no. Yeah, yeah. Dan Rayfield definitely wow. not claiming any paternity whatsoever at the moment over the wow, lunch. that's sad. It really is. Yeah, I was shocked when I saw that on his box rack that he was still fighting. Um, a few other quickies. Uh. I remember Andrew Sixheads Lewis absolutely dazzled oh, yeah. me when he beat James Page for a welterweight title. Yeah. But but I had seen him on an undercard or two before then, so it wasn't okay. like a pure first impression. Another one, Derek Jefferson. I believe the Mo Harris fight, which I had the pleasure of watching live, uh, was the first time I saw him fight, and it was a hell of a first impression. <laughs> yeah. But but if I'm being honest, I think I knew I wasn't looking at a future champ or anything. It was just okay. a ton of fun. Um, and then last ones to mention... Hard to make a more memorable first impression than Somsak Sith Chachawal and Mayar Monshapur did against oh my gosh. each other. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, I, had heard, I had heard those of them both. I was familiar with the names, but I'm pretty sure I had never seen either one fight prior to the 2006 fight of the year that, of course, made watching boxing on YouTube a thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like this is going to be one of those things where we're going to be we're going to be individually thinking of better and other example like constantly yeah like oh yeah that i forgot about that, that guy yep it seemed like the problem is that we're too old and washed and our memories are fading uh, failing us yes. we should have given each other this challenge like 10 15 years ago when <laughs> when we could still remember things uh yes um especially I'm... in my case i mean i'm speaking about myself particularly. right no my i'm, I'm definitely no old and washed and yes same here brain Brain not so not so sharp these days, but uh, if I get access to a time machine, this is what I'll use it for: is to go back and <laughs> give this challenge to my thirty-seven-year-old self, or something like that. 
Really? That's what you're going to use a time machine on? This is important work that we're doing here, Kieran. Okay. (laughs) I'm assuming it's a multiple-use time machine. It's not the only thing you get to use the time machine for. Nope, this is it. I get one wish. (laughs) This is it. Well, first I'm going to wish for more time machines. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, yes, there you go. All right. That's good. Well done. I think I think we're now uh, podcasting in the multiverse. I feel like this got this just got really deep and uh, trippy. Once once again, the kind of analysis you do not get on any other boxing podcast. (laughs) Your next top five challenge. Five fights you would fix with a time machine or something i don't know we'll Ooh. think of that i'll work on that one there's a actually yeah. that there that might be something <laughs> to do bad. with that yeah yeah all right we'll, okay. we'll we'll work on that one a little bit but for now that will do it for this episode of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney we will be back next week with our post-fight analysis of zoo harrison among many other things until then thanks for listening be safe be kind and be well <laughs>